0: I don't know if anyone's ever won a trip somewhere, like one of these all-expenses vacations. All right, Johanna has. Well, imagine if you won a trip to the Mediterranean, right? Like, so you go down to Three Bears or something, and Benjamin Moore paints putting on this special, and if you put in your raffle ticket or whatever, you could win a trip to the Mediterranean, and guess what you won? Like, this this dream vacation, right? So you're going to go, and you're going to see the, the beaches of southern France, and you're going to see uh, just all the stuff in Italy, the Leaning Tower of Pizza, the Rome, and you're going to go see the ruins in Greece, and, and it's just wonderful, and you're in this, on this personal cruise, right? Like, you're on this cruise ship. Not like our big cruise ships here, but one of those, those little ones. And you're, you're just having your dream vacation, and then one night you're awakened as you're on the sea to gunfire. Right? Like and the boat starts moving erratically and you hear shouting and the next thing you know, your cabin door is flung open and men come in and grab you and drag you off into some little boat, and guess what? You find yourself a captive. Right? That sounds pretty scary, like some stuff out of a nineties action movie. But you're now a captive, you're now a slave, and you end up in some Middle Eastern or North African country and, and you're thinking, All right, somebody's gonna figure this out. I'm an American, but nobody ever comes. And you find yourself for years just doing dirty work for some guy and and being beaten and poorly fed and ill-treated. And you're thinking, man, somebody's going to come, but no one ever does. You spend your nights dreaming of your spouse, your kids, your grandkids. You wish you had never come on the vacation. And the years go by, and little by little, you give up hope. You think, this is my life now. But then one day, you get called to your master, You're called to your master, and he's not real happy about it, but he's okay, because he's been given a bunch of money, and he informs you that you have been ransomed. Someone has paid for you to be released, and you now have your freedom. Well today, we're going to learn more about the greatest ransom story in history. We're going to learn more about the word redemption and salvation, and think about what they actually mean, because... We use those words a lot, especially if you grew up in church, but we use those words a lot, so much so that we forget what they mean. Case in point, we were, uh, you know, guys know I like to watch BBC and these British shows, and we're watching this one show, and the guy says, "I I uh, I will let you know the results at three of the clock, and I thought, well, that's a weird way to say something, three of the clock. I was like, why did he say that? And so our curiosity got the best of me, and I started Googling it. And we say it all the time, but we just shorten it and say three o'clock. Did you ever know that the O in the apostrophe means of the clock? I didn't. I mean, maybe I'm the only one in the room. But I use o'clock so much that I didn't even realize what it meant, three of the clock. And sometimes we use these words saved. Sometimes we use these words redeemed. And we throw them around, and we say, oh, yeah, I got saved. But do we really think about what we're saying? What does it mean to be redeemed i say i'm saved what am i saved from right like the the count of monte cristo thing you're using that word and or is it princess bride princess bride right like you're using that word i do not think you know what it means like we say saved all the time Uh, do we really know what it means you say well my childhood pastor a, a good friend from bible college this guy named cliff at work, like they always say, all I need to do, only thing that's important, is that I affirm Jesus as my Lord and Savior, right? And, and I pray this prayer, and I'm baptized, and then I can kind of do whatever I want. And if I sit in this church, I'm told regularly that there needs to be evidence of my salvation. Who do I believe? Cliff? Or what I'm hearing here? So what is salvation? What is redemption? What, how are we to live in light of what has happened? Well, we're going to look today into the book of Luke, and learn more. Now, our theme this Advent has been the dawn of redeeming grace, right? And taking that line from the old hymn, Silent Night, where it says the dawn of redeeming grace. And we see this biblical theme in these passages we've been examining of of God and light, and how Christ is this ultimate light. Week one, we saw in Numbers that a star scepter would rise from Jacob. Right? From the house of Jacob, the star would rise. And we see Balaam, this pagan prince or pagan priest, and he sees this, this vision. And week two, we saw in Isaiah that the people who were walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, it's a future great light, but it's written in such a way that it's, oh, it's already happened because it's so sure because God has promised it. There will be this great light. This child will be born, and he will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father the Prince of Peace. Which brings us to week three. And we're going to talk today about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Right? Zechariah and Elizabeth. So they're these aging couple in the New Testament. They're older. He's a priest, and she is barren. She hasn't had any children. And in the Old Testament, that's seen as like a disgrace. Right? Like, obviously, there's something wrong with you. Or you've done something wrong because you haven't had any kids. That's the way they would have saw it in the first century. But we read in the Bible that they are righteous people. And, and Zechariah is visited by this angel, he's doing his priestly duties, you might remember the story, he's in the, in the temple and he's doing his priestly duties, he's burning this incense, right? And, and this angel appears to him, and the angel says, Zechariah, you're going to have a child. And he's like, nah, no way, we're too old, we're not going to have any kids. And the angel tells him, because you didn't believe what God said, you're not going to be able to speak until the child's born, right? So remember, he's, he's dumb, and, and he comes out and people say, he must have had some kind of experience, because he can't talk, and he's having to write on a tablet all the stuff that he needs to say. But then once the child is born, and Zechariah affirms, all right, this child's name is going to be John, all of a sudden he can talk, and the first thing he does is praise the Lord, and then he, he gives us this song, or this prophecy, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. So if you'd turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, Starting in verse 57. Now as you're turning there, we're going to focus in today on his song or this prophecy, but I am going to read the, uh, the, the, the previous verses just so we kind of have a context of what is going on and, and why he's saying these things. So we're going to start in verse 57. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57, we read, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to the father to find out what he wanted it called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were amazed. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient time. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give you praise for your word, that each week we can come and and be edified and encouraged by your word to see how you have worked in history and how you have in the fullness of your time brought all things together. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we, we, we look at your word today. Give us eyes to see. God, I pray that you would guard my mouth and guard these people's ears, that your truth would remain in their hearts. And if I would say anything that is unhelpful or unprofitable, it would fall away. God, if there's anyone among us who has yet to believe the gospel, God, we pray that you would be gracious and merciful to them and draw them to yourself. Have your way among us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage, in the parts we were going to examine, we see that the priest Zechariah prophesies about the dawn of redeeming grace. Redeeming grace was foretold in the Old Testament. Redeeming grace was preached by John. And redeeming grace will shine on those who live in darkness. Now, these verses are often called the Benedictus, which is the opening word in Latin, which means blessed, right? So, blessed, Benedictus, this is Zechariah's Benedictus. And God's Spirit is on Zechariah, and he starts, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, when you hear that uh, God's Spirit comes upon a prophet, it's a sign that he speaks from God. right? Like in the New Testament, this side of Pentecost, all those who are in Christ are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, right, it worked a little different. And here we see that God's Spirit was on the prophet, and the words he he is saying, they are from God. So this Benedictus, this song, this prophecy is from God. And it's kind of neat because this passage is the last Old Testament prophecy, but it's also the first New Testament prophecy. So it's kind of cool, right? Like we see this is the last prophecy before the Lord comes, but it's also talking very distinctly about the Lord and this new covenant that is about to be inaugurated. So in Advent 1 and 2, we're in the Old Testament looking at Christ foretold, and Advent 4 and 5, we're going to be talking about the birth of Jesus. But in Advent 3, we're right here in the middle. This bridge portion between the Old and New Testaments. And what we see is even though it's an Old Testament and a New Testament, it's the same story. It's not a patchwork. It's not divided up. It's the same story running through Scripture. And the first thing we see is that redeeming grace was foretold in the Old Testament. Look with me at verses 68 through 71. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. So God is a redeemer. God will visit and redeem his people. So when we talk about redeeming, when we talk about that word redeem, like I said, we want to think about that word. And what we're talking about is rescue in the form of payment of ransom. Now, some of you might be all nervous right now, and you're like, all right, is he going to start talking about ransom theory and the C.S. Lewis stuff? No, we're not talking about that. But the Bible talks about us being ransomed, so we should think in terms of ransom. Rescue by payment. In ancient Israel, both property and life could be redeemed by making the appropriate payment. Right? So, for example, if a man lost his inheritance, or if he got so into debt he had to sell himself into slavery, right? like he didn't win a Benjamin Moore tour, right? like he sold himself into slavery, well, one of his relatives could pay the appropriate payment and ransom him, out of slavery god's deliverance of israel from egypt was also spoken of in terms of redemption of being ransomed god stepped forward to redeem his people from their affliction from slavery so friends we must see in scripture that god is a redeeming god he provides the payment for our sin in jesus christ right that's what we'll talk about more here in a few minutes he is a redeeming God, but he is a saving God. We see that he has raised up a horn of salvation for his people. So what does it mean to be a horn of salvation? That's kind of funny language, right? Well, we think about what it means to be a horn just in general. So in the Old Testament times, if you're an animal with a horn, you had a little bit of an advantage in a fight, right? So I guess if you cut the horns off an of ox and he's fighting an uh, ox with horns, and he, the one with horns has got a little bit of an advantage, right? He's a little stronger. He's, he's more mighty and so God has raised up salvation for his elect and this is no mere fire assurance friends but in the Bible this concept of salvation is a mighty salvation it is one that is to make someone sound to heal them to preserve their life to save them from death and Zechariah when he is speaking in the spirit he says you have raised up a strong salvation you have raised up a mighty salvation one that will truly save. One that makes sound depraved wretches. All of us born in sin. Born dead in sin. right? And, and the, the blood of, 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 of ox and goats and, and sheep and all this stuff, it can, it can never fully take away that stain. But God has raised up a mighty salvation that can. God is a saving God. He's a redeeming God. He's a preserving God. And he has raised up this salvation in the house of David. Right? So Luke here, he's pointing to Mary's Davidic connection in the house of David. That's why the Davidic covenant is so important. That's why I'm always harping on it this time of year. Look at this Davidic promise. Because we see it all through the New Testament. Even in the book of Acts, when people are preaching about Jesus, they're always pointing back to David. Because God promised to raise an everlasting king, a king with a throne with no end, through the house of David. In 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. That's what he says he'll do. One of David's descendants will rule forever. And we find that perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God is a redeeming God. He is a saving God. He is a God who keeps his promises. Look with me at verse 72 and 73 he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Remember that God made a promise to Abraham way back in Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis after the first of the year, and we're going to think about these promises. But we see here that God tells Abraham that through him, Right, like all the world will be blessed. That his descendants will be like the, the the sand of the of the seas and the and the stars of the sky. He keeps his promises. Friend, salvation, a deliverance from danger, this mercy, it's all considered in the terms of covenant and the promises God makes. God promised Abraham that he would make him into this great nation, that throughout him all the world would be blessed. Look at 74 through 75. And having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear, but in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. So God, way back in Genesis, has a purpose for this salvation. It's not just random. What do we see the purpose is? Well, that we would serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all of our days. God is setting aside a people for himself. Right? God does not just redeem people so they can go back out and live their old ways. Right? Like where I'm from in Georgia, I've been to a hog killing. And if you know anything about the hogs, right? Like they go right back into the mud. We're not just redeemed so we can go right back into the mud but we are redeemed to be His possession, to be his people. He has rescued us from our enemies for a reason, and he seals us and marks us by his Spirit. Serve God without fear. Our sin and the penalty of sin has been removed through the blood of Christ to serve him in holiness. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit that has made us holy, is making us holy, and will make us Holy, right? Like we are growing into this new creation to serve him in righteousness. We have Christ's righteousness applied to us so that when the Father looks upon a Christian, he sees Christ's righteousness. But also, the New Testament says, we are to pursue righteous and holy lives. Serving God in our presence all of our days, this life. You know, sometimes if you speak to a progressive Christian, or if you watch videos on YouTube, they'll say something like this. When people talk about a God that's angry, they talk about a God I do not know. Well, on one hand, I, you know, in my, my human nature, I want to say, well, you may not know that God if you don't know the God of the Bible. But what they're saying is that they don't know a God that will punish sin. But when people talk to me about a God who does not make his elect holy, and that Christians don't grow in holiness, I don't say to them, you talk about a God I do not know. I say, you talk about a God that the Bible does not know. Because we are called to grow in holiness, to pursue righteousness. Not on our own strength, but what God is doing through us according to the merit of Christ. God redeems, God saves, and God sanctifies. He is making a people for Himself. One that serve Him and honor Him and walk in and the light, and this redeeming grace, and this message, that's the message of John the Baptist. So second thing we see is that redeeming grace would be preached by John. Look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. It's Another way of saying God. You will be a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare His ways. So John the Baptist, he's this prophet, he goes before Christ, right? Like if you've been around for a while, you might know that he goes before Christ, he prepares the way. He's Zechariah's son, and you might think, you know, if this guy is an old guy, he's a priest, and he's not had a kid, and finally has a kid, and he's going to sing this song, you almost think he'd sing the song about his own kid. But what you find is most of the songs about Jesus but there's two lines about it, about John. And what he says about John is, is not like how great you are in and of yourself, but about what you're going to do. You're going to prepare the way of Jesus. You're going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. You're going to tell people about the Messiah. Look at verse 77. You're going to tell people about forgiveness of sins, to give His people knowledge of salvation. Again, this redeeming, this saving from death, this making whole to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. John preached repentance. He preached salvation. He preached forgiveness of sins. He preached that the Jews had to turn back to God, to repent, to change. The apostle John wrote that John was not the light, but that he testified to the light. John the Baptist was a witness to the light. He was a witness to this dawning light, and he testified to it. He prepared the way. You know, a couple years ago, I was looking in my notes, and I've used this illustration before, so if you've been around for two or three years, you may remember you may not. Um, But if you find yourself one day to be commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces, right, and you need to attack somebody, like a country, you'll find you have different... Uh, uh, assets available to you, different units, right? Like, so if you need to invade an island, right? Like, who are you going to call? You're going to call your Marine Corps Infantry, right? Your Marine Infantry, because they're the amphibious assault specialists. If you need to move fast, right? You want your mechanized infantry or your armor guys, right? Like, if you need to do some, like, you know, secret squirrel stuff, maybe you call up, you know, SEAL Team 6 or whatever. But if you need to take an airfield, well, then you're going to call up the United States Army Airborne, you know, I was, a, I was a paratrooper, and that was our bread and butter. And we would practice over and over and over and over, jumping in and taking an airfield, right? Most of our, our drop zones, they have a, what they call an FLA. They have this, this our FLS, this flight landing strip. And we would jump in and practice taking the strip, because once you have the strip taken, you can start landing the C-130s and landing the leg infantry, the, the ground pounders. You can land those guys. But before us, there was an even crazier group of people, and they were called pathfinders. You know your World War II history. You might have read about Pathfinders. And these guys, they jumped in ahead of the paratroopers, right? And what did they do? They lit beacons on the DZ. They prepared the way for the main assault. They jump in in the middle of the night, and they they put these beacons up. Even their, their insignia they wear on their uniform is a torch, this light that prepares the way. Well, in God's infallible battle plan to redeem mankind, we read that God sent John to prepare the way for the main assault. We see that after years of anticipation, the green light is lit. This is D-Day for redeeming grace. John is deployed. He's declaring, preparing the way for Christ. Third, we see that redeeming grace will shine on those who live in darkness. Look at 78-79. through Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So we see this dawn from on high will visit from heaven, and what does the Bible say will do? Will shine on those who walk in darkness. Right? Like, I mean, the imagery here throughout the Bible light, darkness, darkness, obviously evil, light being God and, the, and holiness. And this prophecy ends with dwelling on this, this light and dark and this coming salvation. Because of God's what? His tender mercy. Just think about the words used there his tender mercy, his compassion, his, his compassion on the elect. Christ will come, salvation will dawn. This elderly priest, he speaks of salvation and light and darkness, this dawn of redeeming grace, or I like the archaic word that isn't used a whole lot anymore, this day spring. Think about the word there, the day spring. This, this day is coming, this dawn, the rising sun of God's merciful compassion. Where do we see that? Malachi five or four, right? The end of the end of Malachi, right before we get into the New Testament in our English Bibles, we see the the sun of Righteousness, S U N but also S-O-N. The Son of Righteousness. And in this language, we understand, right? From all these Old Testament we've read, we understand the New Covenant is close. Christ's coming is close. The Davidic King is close. This dawn will shine on those living in darkness. Those in the valley of death. Those in the shadow of, of sin's curse. The dawn from heaven will guide our feet into the way of peace. We read that. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but the more I watch the world and the older I get, I, I, I love this, this idea of the light leading my feet into, the, uh, into peace. The way of peace. But now we remember that peace doesn't mean freedom from all trouble. We talked about that last week. We know both biblically and experientially that we're going to have trouble. The Bible says if you want to live a holy life, get ready for trouble. So what does this peace mean? You know, I was thinking, we watched the movie yesterday. The kids, um, the, the girls went to a Bible shower, a baby shower. And uh, Bible shower sounds cool too, though. Um, they went to a baby shower and asked the boys, I said, hey guys, what do you want to do? And they like all yelled at the same time, Lord of the Rings. And I was like, all right, well, we can watch Lord of the Rings. Hazel doesn't really like it, so we can watch it while they're away. And there's a line that I love where Frodo says to Gandalf, he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish this would have never happened. And Gandalf says, so do all who see such times, but it's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what we will do with the time that is given us. So we know that troubles will come. But Leon Morris, the commentator, writes of this passage. He says, this peace, this peace of God that, that the dawn will guide our feet into, this peace calms our hearts and makes us strong to live for God. So in the middle of the battle, when this dawn rising, with those martyrs that went to the arena, those men who were tied to stakes and burned alive, trouble still came, but this peace calms their hearts It makes them strong to live for God. This redeeming light will give us new hearts. Replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Hearts that belong to God. Hearts that have His peace. And hearts that are strong for Him no matter what comes. That's what Zechariah is singing about. That's what he's prophesying about. This strong redemption, this strong salvation, this this gift of God that he gives to those who he predestined before the foundation of the world. And so, in light of this passage, friends, this third week of Advent, I want us to understand that God's plan is eternal and it is perfect. It's perfect. There could not be a better plan made. We might not understand it, but there could not be a better plan made. Redeeming mankind was not up to chance. We see the promises so far to Abraham, to David, to even Amos as we finish that book. And it's all fulfilled in Christ. Galatians reminds us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. The fullness of time, the right time. But we also know that redeeming us is not up to chance, is it? It's not up to blind fate. Turn with me in your Bible over to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, I just want us to be reminded of this truth today. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, we read this. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved One. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ. As a plan for the right time, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things in earth, in Him, in Him we also have received an inheritance. Because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in the agreement and purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him we were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of God. Of his glory. Friends, we cannot read those verses and in any way think that it's up to chance. Well, I hope it might happen. Who is the driving force in those passages? God. The one who spoke the universe into existence? God. The one who in the fullness of time sent forth his son? God. All things are in his hand according to his will, and we take comfort in that. This morning, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted Christ, if you have turned yourself over to Him, He has called you according to His plan before the foundation of the world. He gives you eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Your salvation, your redemption, friend, it is not up to chance. And that is an incredible encouragement this morning. Because He works out all things according to the purpose of His will. Even our afternoon. Right? There's not a single molecule in this universe that is out of his control. Even our afternoon is worked out. We may not see the immediate results. We might wonder why we go through this. But it's according to the plan of a good God who works out all things according to his will and for the good of those who loved him. How long was it before God fulfilled his oath to Abraham? Exactly how long he intended. How long before this Davidic king came? exactly how long God intended, and not a second, longer or shorter. So friends, another thing we need to think about as we look at this passage is let it dawn on you that the light did not dawn for his followers to continue walking in darkness. Right? Like we need to let it dawn on us that there is a purpose for this redemption, for this ransom, for this salvation. We are called to walk worthy, to live worthy, as the Bible says, of our calling. Because we have had such a great salvation, because the Lord has been so gracious and merciful for, to us, we are called to live a certain way. Sometimes a well-meaning preacher will tell me that I don't need to preach for holiness. I need to just preach to get people saved. Well, I don't save anyone, number one. And number two, the Bible says a lot about how we are to live in light of what Christ has done. In John chapter six, Jesus preaches this hard sermon. Some of you know what sermon I'm talking about, right? Where he starts talking about, you know, if you got to eat of him and drink of his blood. And what happens? They say yeah, that's a hard truth, and a lot of disciples leave him, right? Like a bunch of folks just peel off and they're like, I'm out, I'm done. But what does Jesus do? Does he change his message? Right? Does he go to the apostles and go, guys, that didn't really fall just right, and maybe we need to think about this. We need to have a meeting. We need to get the people in. We need to get our numbers back up. We need to you know, change the message a little bit. No. Jesus doesn't stop teaching hard truths so he can increase his numbers. Because as one man has said, as, as the elders and those training for the ministry heard a couple of months ago in Kansas City, Jesus is more concerned with the quality of his disciples than the quantity. Right? We see that in that, in that, in that John 6. He's more concerned with the quality of his disciples than the quantity. And so what we should understand from that is Jesus cares in light of this passage in that passage in how we live our lives. In this passage, we read that the redeeming light is dawned so that those having been rescued, Christ's followers, so that those who have been rescued would, what? Serve Him in holiness and righteousness all of their days. I'm sorry if you had a pastor that told you you could just pray a prayer and do whatever you want and you have fire insurance. I'm sorry that Cliff at work has different ideas, but the Bible says that we're to walk worthy we are to what? Examine ourselves. Do you struggle with doubt? Don't pull out the card you got on your baptism day and reinforce to yourself. Evaluate yourself. Am I walking as one that has been redeemed? Am I walking in the light? Not perfectly, right? Like we all fail, I fail. We all have to repent daily. We're not talking about every second of the day, but snapshots of your life, as my mentor said. If we laid the snapshot out on the table, what would the overwhelming theme be? Would it be one of faithfulness and the pursuit of holiness? Or would it be one of selfishness? John 1, 1.6, 1 John 1, 1.6 says, If we say we have fellowship with God, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and do not practice the truth. Friends, please listen. What does your walk say about you? What does your daily life say about you? What does your conscience say now? Have you passed from darkness to light? Or are you faking it? You know, you can fake it to a lot of people. I could fake it to you. But eventually it will come to light. And overall, God sees our hearts and that's what matters most. Are you faking it? Or are you truly walking in the light? Do you enjoy the things the Bible calls sin? Are you self-centered? Uh, or do you remorse? Do you, do you have lament over your sin and turn from it? Friend, if you feel Christ calling you to the light now, repent and be reconciled to God repent and believe the gospel because that is why this light is dawned to redeem to save and that we might walk holy and righteous lives before him all our days friends repentance is turning and embracing god in faith and there is no hope outside of christ the dayspring, the dawn of redeeming grace because of your sin, you and I are separated from God. Because of my sin, I am separated from God. All of us are born separated from God because He is a just God. Sin cannot be in His presence. But in His great mercy, He sent His Son as a ransom for our sin. And He took the sin of His sheep on the cross where He bore all of the Father's righteous wrath and was killed. And after three days, he rose from the grave, conquering death And is now at the right hand of the Father. Because of this sin, there is a barrier between you and God, and that barrier is only removed through the blood of Christ. Our redemption, our salvation from God's wrath. And here we see in this passage that God's visitation with his people has begun. His plan to destroy sin and death is now shifting into high gear. And we get to read about it over the next couple of weeks. God in the flesh has come to dwell among men. He is a redeeming God. He is a saving God. He has purchased our salvation. He has raised up this horn of salvation, this great strong horn of salvation that has come at a great cost to Himself. God in the flesh gave Himself to ransom us, to redeem us to pay this insurmountable amount of debt that we owe. And friends, we see that the gospel is so much more than repeat these words so you don't burn. Christian, you have been bought by the Creator with a price. God became flesh and laid down His life, the dawn of redeeming grace. Father, help us this morning to treasure the gospel. God, help us to live worthy of the gospel. God, for those who have not trusted you, God, give them eyes to see the gospel. All for Christ's sake we pray. Amen.